When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tortoise. Welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm Rachel Wolfe. And I'm John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University and a committed poll watcher. In this podcast, we're interested in some of the longer term trends that shape politics, policies and the news. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster. It means I spend a lot of my time trying to understand what voters think and why governments do or don't do certain things. This week... I want to spend some time talking about party conferences and voters, party members and MPs. You may not have noticed, but we are now in full party conference season. The Lib Dems have been in Bournemouth this week. You may have seen a picture of Ed Davey falling in the water. The Tories meet in Manchester next week and then Labour in Liverpool after that. Ostensibly, party conferences are supposed to be for party members, the people who knock on doors and pay their subscriptions But if you've been, it can sometimes be hard to tell as you trip over people in public affairs and industry. When you're winning, that's even more true and members become quite a rare sight in the middle of the huge conference halls. But John, what do you want to talk about this week? Well, if you remember, Rachel, we promised our listeners we would talk about net zero, climate change, etc. Because the Prime Minister uh, made his announcement last week in which he was rowing back some of the scope and timing of some of those measures such on the implementation of uh, ban on gas boilers and on the ban on petrol and diesel cars. And meanwhile, we've also had the announcement that uh, the government is going to grant a license for the exportation of oil and gas off the Shetlands. So I think probably uh, we should start there for on a subject which, of course, is uh, arguably a pretty existential one so far as the future of humanity on this planet is concerned. Indeed, Rachel, my memory is that Public First, your agency, has done some work on this subject, not recently, and including, seem to have some advice for the Prime Minister about what he might or might not do about net zero. We did. We did a big 4,000 people poll, which is quite big in polling terms, just before Rishi Sunak made his announcement. And we also did some focus groups, which is where you sit in a room with people and dig a bit deeper into what they think about climate change. And I'll, I'll talk very briefly about what we found, John and I, be interesting if it chimes with your views. But before I do that, it's probably worth stressing that a lot of what Rishi Sunak was doing with net zero had nothing to do with net zero. He's trying to do two things with a flurry of announcements of which net zero was only one. There have also been announcements on inheritance tax, maths to 18 and HS2 in the last week. I think what he's I think, really I think, to... I think they're all non-announcements, Rachel. They're all, so oh, sorry, far, you're yes. right. They're non-confirmed, maybe briefed announcements uh, ready for conference. You're completely right, John. But I think really he's trying to do two different things. The first is to make it harder for Labour to be the fiscally responsible party going into the election. The big fault line that both parties think is going to be really important in 
let's say, a year in the election, is who can be trusted with the economy in the midst of cost of living and high inflation. And they, he wants to cut spending or in other ways make it harder for Labour to say that their sums add up unless they follow him. So I think that's the first thing he's trying to do. Well, of course, given the Conservative Party have vastly increased both taxation and spending during their tenure, it's perhaps going to be quite a difficult pitch for him to pursue, but anyway. Absolutely. And I think this is quite difficult, but it is also interesting how much my Labour friends tell me that this is, you know, causing some consternation about how exactly Labour should respond. And the second thing he's trying to do is actually set out who he is. It's been quite a a quiet year in terms of announcements. And he's trying to show that he is someone with ideas, that he is a prime minister who is leading the country. And it should be said, this is a public opinion podcast mostly, but he also probably believes quite a lot of the things that he's announcing. Okay, can I take you back, though, to the substance of what he did announce as opposed to what you think the politics might be? Yes, absolutely. So, net zero. Uh, So the first thing to say is, unlike in the US and in lots of other countries, there isn't a lot of green scepticism in this country. Broadly, people care about climate change and they think net zero is a good thing, even if they're conservative, even if they're in the red wall, even if they're older, they think that this is something that needs to be tackled. And they don't think that the reason cost of living has gone up is because of green costs. When you ask them what has driven the cost of living crisis, net zero barely even features. And so they do want action. On the other hand, as you have also noted, John, the two big policies that Rishi Sunak announced, lengthening the period of time before people who need to change their boilers need to move to a electric one, a heat pump, and delaying the period of time before people need to move to an electric car are on the face of it quite popular. My only uh, hesitation about that is that when we've done focus groups on it, people have seen this as yet another thing the Tories have dropped. They made a huge deal of their environmental credentials of net zero. This is one of the few big areas of domestic progress. And even if they support it on the face of things, I think it does make it a bit more difficult in a year to say that they've made consistent progress. Yeah, but then I think isn't therefore the interesting thing about the way in which Mr Sunak framed what he was doing was indeed to say, look, look, I'm not abandoning net zero. I agree, I agree it matters, etc., etc. The question is, how do we get there? And also, crucially, who pays for it when? Um, so, I mean, a lot of the polling that you did kind of said to people, well, you know, uh, does net zero matter? Yes, 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 yes. Um, but the point is, Mr. Sunak was very, very careful not to suggest he was abandoning that. What he was, I think, trying to get into, and I think there is little doubt that this is an issue, the polling indicates this, this quite clearly, is the issue of cost. And in Who pays? Sense, yeah, yeah, sure. And well, the, the immediate pitch he had was that uh, these measures on gas boilers, electric cars, and one or two other things would help to ensure, help to address um, the cost of living. And it was interesting he framed in that way because, of course, actually, I think unless you were about to put a heat pump in in the next 12 months, uh, and therefore in England at least, because it was already 7,500 quid in Scotland, you would get uh, 2,500 quid more in the way of a grant to do that. Was it entirely clear that any of this would make any difference to the cost of living in the short run? And indeed, you know, one of the interesting reactions of the public, um, uh, according to one poll, was that indeed slightly... Uh, more people thought um, it actually would increase the cost of living than thought it would actually reduce it. In other words, that frame, how successful that framing has been is debatable. But rhetorically, 
there is little doubt that this is a crucial issue. I mean, if you look at the, the gamut of measures about attitudes towards uh, climate change, well, basically, we're happy to be subsidised. We've accommodated ourselves to renewable energy, but start talking about taxing us. And most of those measures are relatively unpopular. And, you know, more broadly, voters have been turning pollsters in, you know, recently one game, one poll from Ipsos, for example, just over 30% of people said, well, look, I'd like to do more about the environment, but frankly, I can't afford to do so. And only about 20% are taking uh, the opposite view. And in a sense, arguably, therefore, the crucial issue uh, with all of this is, yes, voters are concerned. Conservative voters almost as concerned as everybody else, not quite. Um, they agree with net zero, but when you get to the question of implementation and who bears the cost, that's where the difficulty arises. I think the point is that although the Prime Minister framed his uh, proposals against that undoubted concern, whether or not it would actually deliver anything to do with that concern, or at least convince voters to deliver anything to do with that concern in the short run, I think is much more debatable. And I guess there are a few questions that arise from this. The first is, is this just a general phenomenon? In my experience, generally, people quite like to be subsidised and they don't really like paying for things, regardless of whether it's the environment or anything else. And of course, right now, people feel and indeed are significantly poorer than they were a few years ago. So is this about the environment or is this about, I think, a genuine challenge that people don't think they can afford anything at the moment and already generally feel that they're taxed enough? Well, I think there are two obvious uh, two, two uh, reasons why cost is an issue. One, indeed, is that the cost of energy in people's homes is now already much higher than it was. So certainly the room for people's toleration for paying a bit more has pretty much been exhausted because they're already paying a lot more than a, than a bit more. The second issue, I think, that arises, and again, I think you know, that's the one bit that Cynic did address with the increased subsidy, is the upfront cost. In other words, this is an area where in order perhaps to pay less for energy in the long run, as well as indeed helping the climate, you have to have a fairly potential substantial upfront cost, particularly obviously true at the moment with heat pumps. Now, here we get into a whole debate about whether or not if we wait longer, the technology will move on such that it will cost less. And I think, again, that's part probably part of the government's calculation. But certainly, I mean, you say we want to be subsidised. Yes, we want to be subsidised, but at least on the conservative side of the fence, we at least also have this perception, and it's not entirely wrong, that conservatives don't necessarily want the government to be spending too much money. You know, Liz tries to help out, not a hand out, and arguably paying for people to install their, their heat pumps and have nice, cosy, carbon-neutral uh, homes is a pretty good uh, handout. Uh, and, but I think, again, one of the interesting things I picked up uh, from the polling that you did is that um, it, it, it said, you know, do you think that the cost of uh, transition of which you know, things like heat pumps is part, should be borne by voters or should it be borne by the government? And basically what you discovered is that uh, you know, around a half of your sample said, well, it should be either entirely or mostly the individual, and the other half said entirely or mostly the government. Well, again, so again, illustrating that as indeed like things, the banning of the gas boilers and et cetera, et cetera, we, we are split uh, again on this. But the interesting thing then about the split was that actually conservative supporters 
were rather more likely to say that the government should bear the cost uh, than they were individuals, which, as it were, is the opposite of what we would normally expect um, of conservative voters. We don't normally think of conservative voters as being the group that is keener than Labour voters on wanting to socialise uh, the cost of this particular transition. And I think there's a reasonably simple explanation for this, which is it's the same reason that Conservative voters tend to be really big fans of the triple lock, which is the rule that your pension goes up with whichever's the bigger of earnings, inflation or 2.5% in homes, which are worth quite a lot and have very high energy bills, but relying on their pensions. So sort of relatively low income, relatively high wealth. And so they would quite like subsidies for them, and I think this is something that you have to accept is generally true of the electorate, which is um, they would like policies that benefit them and their families, and that is natural. Well, therefore, it just goes to show that, show that sometimes ideology has its limits. One quite weird question we should think we should uh, uh, discuss, of course, is has it made any difference to the Conservatives' level of popularity? on which we've had somewhat mixed signals uh, from the polls. So the very first polls that were done straight after Mr Sunak's announcement, you know, we were getting one point changes in Labour and Conservative support, at which point uh, people like you and I go, well, we won't make take any notice of that because that's all well, well within the range of variation that polls get simply as a result of, of random chance. But then we had a poll from Delta poll in particular that had uh, the Conservatives up by five points, Labour down by three, and the Sun newspaper at least trumpeted this as evidence that Mr Sunak's announcements was already beginning to turn around Conservative fortunes. Now, here we get into the uh, difficulty of, you know, of looking at the short run. It so happened that the Delta Poll's previous poll, the previous week, had had by their standards a rather unusually low figure for the Conservatives. It was down to uh, 23%. And in fact, the 28% that Delta Poll uh, had in their most recent poll is exactly the same for the Conservatives as they had at the beginning of September. So on that, we're uncertain. Now, YouGov have also pitched in. They've found a smaller swing. YouGov are also a company that have tended to have rather low figures for the Conservatives, but rather more consistently than Delta Poll. So maybe that's rather stronger evidence. I mean, I think all that one can say so far is if you take the average of the polls that have been conducted since Mr Sunak's announcement, Conservative support is up one point, which simply means that basically they've reversed the one point drop that they had hitherto been suffering during September uh, and Labour are holding steady and we're still looking at a 17 point lead. So certainly, whatever your polling says, Rachel, it doesn't seem to have done him any harm, but whether it's going to do the Conservatives much good, um, uh, by, no, by no means clear. But as you say, perhaps the importance about this is not this particular announcement, but the fact that it's going to herald a change of prime ministerial style, which Mr Sunak hopes will make a difference to people's perceptions of him and his party. Yeah, my assumption is that if he, if he thinks that he's going to move the polls, it's going to be because of this package, that he's going to keep announcing things between now and conference and at conference and after, and together this will start to shift perceptions. The challenge is, and this is probably something we should have said earlier, that while people do care about climate change, they don't care about it very much compared to hospitals, ambulances and the cost of living. And that generally is uh, a bigger indicator of how they feel about politics right now and is probably going to drive more of their vote. Yeah, climate change is a long run concern, but it's uh, crowded out in the short term by lots of other more immediate considerations. And that's always going to be the challenge that our politicians will face of whatever political stripe as they uh, 
try to deal with this if they find themselves in office in the next 10 or 20 years or so. So we'll probably have a much better sense of how all of this has played out, uh, including Labour's response after party conference, because party conference is the time when political parties get genuinely get consistent attention on them. They can fill the newspapers. They can say what they want to say. And maybe some of what they do cuts through. So so this might be a good, good moment to talk about party conferences. Um, I'm sure all of you have watched the Liberal Democrat conference in detail uh, and know everything that they've said. Um, well, I, I did actually go for Of course you did. For day, did <laughs> of course you've been watching, John. Uh, so there's this, there's this one story of the last week that I think is a brilliant example of this tension between the membership of political parties and the attempt of political parties to speak to voters and indeed their own MPs which is that the young Liberals, the the young wing of the Liberal Democrats, forced a vote at Liberal Democrat conference because they're allowed to force votes uh, to make the party back house building targets because the party tends to fight locally quite consistently on stopping development. They're quite a nimbyish party locally uh, and they tend to be in quite nice green parts of the southwest and southeast of England and they wanted to drop these house building targets and there was this furious speech by Tim Farron about the Thatcherite wing of the Liberal Democrats forcing house building targets against these young liberals who feel that they can't afford a home and this is fundamentally wrong and the young liberals won so they now have to back house building targets so on the face of it well that's the question on the face of it they've won. The membership has a role. The membership gets to decide what the party says. How that's actually going to play out in an election, uh, John, well, what do you think? Well, look, um, there are plenty of uh, recent examples um, of parties, party conferences making decisions that the leadership largely wish to ignore or downplay. So apart from the housing row inside the uh, Liberal Democrats, the other thing that was rumbling during their conference was whether the parties should be saying more about its policy on Brexit, which is in the long run, at least, uh, to reverse the decision to leave the European Union, albeit perhaps on a relatively uh, leisurely timescale. That's something that the leadership has wanted to downplay. Uh, Last year's conference, last year's Labour conference, voted in favour of the introduction of proportional representation. That's the furthest that Labour have ever gone out of the issue. Before 1997, they were in favour of holding a referendum on it, but now they've come out in favour of the change. But you know what? Sir Keir Starmer has made it perfectly clear that he doesn't think this is a terribly good idea and therefore it won't be pursued. And of course, Labour have all long had this had this procedure whereby you know, conference makes, makes decisions. If it's a two-thirds decision, it becomes official policy. But there is then a whole process for the, of the production of the manifesto where it's, which is negotiated between basically the parliamentary party and the national executive committee before oh we god I, 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 I can't bear it when people describe labor policy <laughs> it's so exhausting well rachel you're rather an expert on how the conservative party develops its policy well, so the nice thing is there's no process at all the the conservative party is uh, unusual as a political party compared to the others in that it doesn't have a formal member vote on anything except the final two round of who becomes leader of the party, which is significant. We can come back to that. But if you are, say, writing a manifesto for the Conservative Party, as I was involved in in 2019, you ask for constituency views and MPs' views, but you have no obligation to listen to any of them. You don't have to pretend to listen to them and then sort of wend your way round it as the Liberal Democrats and Labour do. 
you decide as the leadership what your policy is going to be. Um, what I find fascinating, of course, as you said, is that for the other political parties, there's this enormous amount of process and voting. But actually, in the end, generally, the parties put in their manifestos what they think is going to win with the electorate, not what their members want. And that's one of the reasons that some of the Labour membership is so angry with Keir Starmer, despite the fact that he's doing brilliantly in the polls, because they feel that he became leader, offering all sorts of pledges mm -hmm. to Labour members that were very Corbynite. Yeah. And now he's run away from that because he wants to appeal to the electorate. Yeah, but this is a very, very old story. So the political scientist Bob McKenzie, which some people of a certain age may remember because he used to appear on the BBC's election night programmes with David Butler in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Before um, you he, were the uh, permanent uh, fixture on our well, television yeah, screens. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> um, uh, so he, he, um, he wrote a, 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 a brilliant book called British Political Parties way back in the 1950s. And his argument was, well, yeah, sure, the Labour Party is supposedly democratic and supposedly the, the, the conference is, is, is sovereign, um, ultimately. But in practice, he argued, actually, very often uh, conference is ignored. And you know, we've just already cited the most recent example. But conversely, he also argued that although um, formally at that stage, although they debated a bit more than they do at the moment, the Conservative Party uh, conference had no uh, ultimate sovereignty over what Conservative Party policy was. In practice, occasionally, they did have an influence. And interestingly enough, given what's happened uh, at the Wodokat conference, one of the issues that he particularly highlighted was the housing policy of the Conservative government from 1951 onwards. It was pressure, according to McKenzie, it was pressure from the party conference uh, and motions that were passed at conference that persuaded the uh, Conservative government in the early 1950s that it needed to pursue uh, uh, an aggressive policy of expanding housing. Uh, and we, see, we still see some of this in our urban environments because it wasn't just private sector housing, it was a lot of social housing as well. And that, he argued, was the result of pressure from members, you know, responding to the housing crisis after the Second World War. And of course, also, let's also remember you know, where did, the, where did some of the motivation for the poll tax come from? Well, discontent amongst Conservative members with the previous system of rates. So um, Mackenzie's argument was, you know, not that you know, the Conservative conference or members were more powerful than Labour ones. It was that in the end, there wasn't much that difference between them, that there is always uh, an interplay going on. And that actually, irrespective of the formal structure, well, A, leaders tend to be dominant, but occasionally, in all parties, members make a difference. So I absolutely love this story. And one of the reasons I love this story is it feels so topsy-turvy for current politics. The idea that members of the Conservative Party forced the Conservative government into a massive house building programme because they were so discontented with the state of housing is a, is a useful reminder that parties change and politics change and they will change again. And, and what feels like a bit of a gridlock right now with every party a bit frightened to promise any building anywhere may not be permanent. Here's here's. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The reason that I find members so interesting is because, well, two things, really. The first is we, we've obviously seen outside of Labour, and we should come to Labour, a, a general decline in membership across the political parties over the last yep. century. And that's part of a general drop in membership of institutions. So we are less likely to go to church. We've had a massive decline in the percentage of people who are members of working men's clubs or the kind of classic social clubs in the north. But far fewer people are members. Members tend now to be a lot older. The whole population is older, but members tend to be a lot older. And we don't. I don't actually have longitudinal evidence on this. You might, John. But, but we also do know that they are somewhat different in their views from voters. Labour members are more left-wing than your average voters. (laughs) And Conservative members are somewhat more right-wing than voters. Yes. Well, let's let's first of all go back to uh, to the membership. The truth is, over the long run, the history of membership figures is one clouded in a great degree of obscurity. Reportedly, the Conservatives had three million members in the 1950s. It was a party that young middle-class people joined because it's perhaps where they might find a partner. I was uh, told the, it was the called the Marriage life. Mart, which I, I indeed, love. Yes, yes, the Young Conservatives was a very vibrant organisation <laughs> at that time, if not uh, socially, if not necessarily politically. But Labour also, you know, reportedly a million members, although, of course, you know, uh, again, you, there were the rules meant that probably that figure was inflated. But even since the beginning of this uh, uh, century conservative membership is down from about two hundred seventy-five thousand down to about one hundred seventy-two. The one party that's but the trend until recently is the Scottish National Party, which got to over a hundred thousand members in the wake of the twenty fourteen referendum. Sustained that for quite a while, but as we discovered during the some of the rows inside the party earlier this year, it's now gone down to about seventy-two thousand. Oh, and by the way, the Greens have many more members now than they once did. They've gone up from about 15,000 to over 50,000. So, you know, it, it's very... And of course, well, but equally, I think one should say there are other organisations which don't have trouble getting members. The National Trust, both north and south of the border. The Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. But of course, as long been remarked, often this is membership of a more transactional kind rather than necessarily because people are pursuing a faith, whether that's be, be a political... Um, or, or religious. And it's interesting, John, because your British social attitude stuff does show that people are, if anything, more interested in politics. It's not that they don't want to engage in political questions. It's that they see no value, social or otherwise, from becoming a paid up member of a party. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it does rate, I mean, insofar as political parties are the recruiting ground for uh, MPs, politicians, ministers, every prime minister, the fact that um, in England, at least, party political membership is now something that less than 1% of the public uh, engage in does mean that um, our politicians are coming from a very, very narrow ground. In the SNP are still, despite their recent decline, you know, over 2% of the public in Scotland 
are members of a, of a political party thanks to the SNP. But it does, even there, you know, it's still a relatively small number, which of course uh, has increased the focus on members. And the other reason for focus on members, of course, is well, do we blame the Labour members for electing Jeremy Corbyn? And do we elected Tory members for electing Liz Truss? And did both of them make a mistake or not? And actually, one of the things that's interesting on the Conservative side is members obviously do feel they made a mistake. There was this great poll that showed members had deep regret at choosing Liz Truss and felt they'd made a mistake. On the Labour side, I think it's slightly less obvious. What you've seen is an exodus of a lot of those members who felt quite attached to Jeremy Corbyn. And it's not at all obvious to me that they broadly think it was a mistake. But of course, this experience has revived the debate about whether or not giving ordinary members a role in leadership elections, empowering them is or is not a sensible approach. Of course, it's worth remembering, it's one of the ironies of the history of the Mr. Labour Party, is that the pursuit of one member, one vote, originally under John Smith um, in the 1990s, and then eventually uh, completed by Ed Miliband in advance of the 2015 uh, Labour leadership election, where Labour moving to an entirely one member, one vote system. Uh, A lot of the motivation for that was in the belief that the members would be saner and more responsible than having the party in the control of activists, those members who are most active and involved in constituency parties and also uh, the trade unions. Well, it didn't quite work out like that. But of course, there's a long running debate out there about um, what political scientists call, and sorry, we're now gonna get a little bit of technical stuff, but I'll explain it in a moment, that May's curvilinear law of disparity. So the idea is that... That sounds like the sort of thing you name just so graduates can show off about it. Ah, that's right, indeed. Anyway, (laughs) so the idea was that that, that Mr May, the political scientist in question, said was, look, you know, voters tend to be in the middle. And and so although Labour voters are a bit on the left, Conservatives are a bit on the right, you know, they're, 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 they're pretty centrist. But the people who are activists, they are fairly hardline ideologues. The Labour Party, they're well, well to the left. In the Conservative Party, they are well to the right. Because at the end of the day, you know, what, what is their motivation for going out, knocking on doors, delivering leaflets, etc., etc.? It's because they believe in the faith, they believe in the cause. Leaders, meanwhile, however, realise that they're only ever going to get power if they um, actually appeal to their voters. So leaders, therefore, are meant to be more moderate. The question is, however, is whether or not this picture is true, because it is a picture that the Corbyn and Truss experience seem to corroborate. However, I think there's some quite interesting evidence that was done by Tim Bale at Queen Mary, which suggests this isn't, actually, yeah. this isn't actually true, that at least on some measures, MPs are further away from voters than members are. They're actually more, if you're a Conservative, they're more right-wing relative to voters on economics uh, and more authoritarian relative to voters on social issues than members are, and the same for Labour. On the left-right issue, it, it definitely works. In particular, Conservative MPs, according to uh, bail and wages evidence, are very clearly to the right of Conservative voters and they are further to the right than our members. And again, we should remember, although Liz Truss wasn't the most popular 
of the candidates. In the end, it was Tory MPs who put mistrust on the ballot. In the case of Labour, Wager and Bale suggest that uh, you know Labour MPs are a bit to the left of uh, Labour voters, but not so much as members. So therefore, they think it works. I mean, I think maybe the question for listeners is how much does any of this matter? Because as we just discussed, members have pretty limited roles. So whether they're far apart or not, or a reasonable influence or not, is is only semi-relevant. And And in my experience, it really only matters when they're choosing the leader, because the leader will then make promises which are very much geared to where they think the membership will be. That might yep. be major taxes on big businesses they hate, or it might be a promise for more grammar schools. They'll, they'll make pitches to where they think their members are to win, and then quite often try and figure out how to um, undo some of those promises once they're actually in, or trying to appeal to the electorate. That's one reason it matters. There's one other crucial way in which they matter, and that is that in all of our parties now, the selection of candidates... That's exactly what I was going to come on to. Is, okay, agree. sorry. It's no, 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 okay. I totally agree with you. Because I think this is really interesting. Because one of the things that we have definitely seen from both Labour and Conservatives recently is a bit of a trend towards selecting councillors from the local area. A little bit mm-hmm. less of the great special advisor or rising star descending onto a seat and automatically getting it. And members, perhaps because they feel a bit irritable that there are fewer and fewer of them who are putting in the hard yards of knocking on doors and tackling local issues, tend to vote for one of their own. So the people who are becoming MPs are increasingly people who've done local campaigning, been willing to stand for local council, been councillors for a long time. And that That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it tends to be a certain kind of person with a certain set of views and less, again, you could say this was a good thing or a bad thing, of the kind of elite people that you think of who've been prime ministers or chancellors of the last hundred years, most of whom haven't come from that background. No, and of course, also many of our candidates these days have tended to be pretty much full-time politicians for quite a while, even before they've entered uh, the House of Commons. Although, of course, uh, the other thing which I think we're certainly again seeing uh, evidence of this far is that the influence of members in choosing candidates is probably greater inside the Conservative Party than it is inside the Labour Party. We are seeing once again, and you know, it, it's been done by, uh, it was being, uh, it's been done on, under many a Labour leader, we are seeing the Labour leadership using its ability to control the shortlists that uh, appear uh, before uh, members to try and exclude certain people from uh, the left at the moment. Whereas the ability of Conservative Central Office to control who its members choose is much more limited. And arguably that's one of the reasons why, um, although in some respects the Conservative Parliamentary Party looks now very diverse because of the high prevalence of those from minority uh, ethnic background amongst the uh, senior uh, senior ministers, um, actually it's the Labour Party has been able to use its control of membership to ensure that it does not have a parliamentary party that has slightly more uh, women uh, than men. So uh, again, you know, perceptions of parties and perceptions of the control of members and who and who isn't uh, the more powerful isn't necessarily always in line with what we, our image of uh, our two biggest parties. So I guess what are we concluding here? We are concluding that while there aren't that many members compared to the past, they're not as on a limb in their views as some people might assume Mm -hmm. compared to voters and certainly compared to some MPs. But they do have quite a big effect 
maybe more in the Conservatives than Labour, but still some significant effect on what sort of person becomes a politician in the first place. And given those politicians themselves are on a limb compared to voters, that does seem to be a kind of reinforcing factor. For conferences, though, it does feel like a bit of a dance. Uh, It's all designed to appeal to the members, except the members don't really matter, because even if you win your motion, it's not going to be the manifesto if they think it won't win. I think, Rachel, that's a masterly summary. (laughs) That's it from Trendy for this week. We've covered a lot. I'm Rachel Wolfe. And I'm John Curtis. Thanks for listening. If you've got any questions for us or there's anything you'd like us to discuss or take a look at, then you can email trendy at tortoisemedia, that's all one word, dot com. Next week, we're going to talk about one of John's many mastermind subjects, but perhaps his mastermind of mastermind subjects, Scotland, uh, the SNP and Labour. And I will listen in awe as he explains what on earth is going on north of the border. New episodes are published every Thursday. Do rate and review us. It really helps people find us. And follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Tortoise.